0: Hello and welcome to this audio edition of the Year of the Red Door News and Updates Newsletter. In a moment, I'll share my latest news, I'll answer your questions, and I will talk about a particular theme or aspect of the Year of the Red Door. And I'll share with you a new installment of my Thinking Out Loud series. Keep in mind that most of the offers, discounts, and freebies that I mention in this audio version are only available to subscribers who receive the email version of this newsletter. If you want to get in on those perks, sign up to be a newsletter subscriber at TheYearOfTheRedDoor.com. I hope you enjoy this audio edition of the newsletter. Hey there. Welcome to the November-December 2018 issue of the newsletter. This is William. I'll be talking about gifts, gutters, and a time machine, and I'll be answering a reader question about Sarath Ellen, Queen of Venara. First up are a few items of news and some updates. And In the email version of this newsletter, you'll also find a few links to what I've been listening to lately and a few articles that I've been reading. This is a holiday issue. Unless something comes up that I think you might like to know about, this will be the final email from me until 2019. I'm hoping that my books will get some special holiday pricing and if that happens, I'll let you know. But in case you don't hear from me, I wish you a very sweet and special holiday and I'll bid you a joyful new year. I might be participating in an open mic event at a local bookstore. It's an opportunity for folks to hear local authors and learn about their work. Each author will be given eight minutes, so it's a pretty fast program. The organizers sent me an invitation in the hopes, I think, that I would consider participating. I'm still a bit undecided. There are a lot of details that I would have to work out ahead of time. But they say that I don't need to commit. I can just show up if I want to, and they'll make a slot for me. And I think that's an awful nice gesture. But, to tell you the truth, I'm not really sure that I have anything that might make a good out loud reading. Which passages of the Year of the Red Door, that is. If you can think of a particular passage that would make for a good out loud reading, let me know. I'm really open to any ideas right now. I write for readers to read to themselves, and that's very different than writing in a sort of script form. There are a lot of writers who write their fiction that way, and I think a lot of them are hoping to appeal to young readers that need a lot of action and not a lot of vocabulary. My form of writing is very different than theirs, and I'm writing to a more cerebral reader, and that's been confirmed over and over by my reader surveys. Most of my readers are very well educated, and many of them hold advanced university degrees. Now, I don't mean that in a conceited way, because I do have a great deal of respect for the other kind of writer, Some of them are just brilliant, but obviously that's not me. Anyway, I'm in the process of looking at some passages for the reading. If I attend, I'll try to get out an announcement or press release about it, but it might be a last minute thing. Okay, I've saved the big news for last. I'm recording this on the 30th of November, and just this afternoon, I received news that the bell ringer has been honored with a Bragg Medallion from the Book Readers Appreciation Group. They've been around since 2012, and their Bragg Medallion is a kind of seal of approval for books that are written by independent authors like me. A book has to earn the medallion by making it through several layers of quality assessment until it is submitted to a committee of readers who are located all over the globe. After reading the book, each committee reader casts a vote as to whether or not the book deserves recognition. Their votes must be unanimous, or else the book is rejected. So yes, they've officially awarded their medallion to the bell ringer, telling the world what you've been telling me all along, that it's a pretty good book. So it's really nice for me and for all of you to have the bell ringer recognized in this way. To each and every member of the Book Readers Appreciation Group, whoever you are, wherever you are, I say thank you. (music) My Recent Activities Well, it doesn't seem like I've done all that much since last month. It's cooler now, with heavy frost most every morning. And we've had some heavy rain that made outdoor chores impossible. Except for the oaks, most of the trees have shed their leaves. And I think most of those leaves wound up clogging up our gutters. So as soon as weather permitted, I climbed up onto the roof. My wife caught me on camera blasting out the gutters with a blower. You can see some of the flying debris, and in the background you can see the oaks that have yet to drop their leaves. And of course the pines will remain green but will do some serious shedding now that the night air is so cold. With the Christmas season upon us, we're getting started on decorations. My wife Deirdre always makes our modest home so beautiful and cozy. She gathers greenery from around the property, pine, holly and mistletoe to use on our mantel and in various arrangements. And Deirdre hangs holiday art that she's collected as well as some heirloom photos of Santa with family members. For the past few seasons, we've opted not to put up a full-size Christmas tree. Instead, we create a Christmas tree forest of miniature trees that we've collected over the years, made of ceramic, glass, or wire. We arrange them on the piano and I usually position some special lighting to give them a magical aspect when the room lights are dimmed. We don't do a lot of decorating outside, but we do put up wreaths and a bit of ribbon. Not to be left out of the fun, I also hang wreaths on the doors at the Year of the Red Door website. You should check it out. Yes, I've been working on a few new stories. There's one in particular that I've been mulling over for a while. Something sort of like Raiders of the Lost Ark or The Mummy. I started the general research needed for the story a couple of years ago, and this month I got serious about certain specific bits of information that I need to get straight before I can proceed. But slogging through 5,000-year-old legends and records is not easy. I'm not going to say much more than that right now, because it might not go anywhere. Best case scenario, though, is that I'll have the information kinks worked out by the end of the year. Then I'll really be putting pen to paper in a serious fashion, assuming I don't run into a dead end. Other than that, I'm still working on some notes and revisions pertaining to Isildra's story, part of which I shared with you as a backstory way back in 2016. That version was short and it was really incomplete to tell the truth. My notes contain a lot more about her and about how she was involved in or a witness to so many things throughout history. She was, for example, instrumental in Coupaldane's ascent to the throne of Venara, even though her role was somewhat clandestine. That's just one bit of what's in store for you if I ever get it together. It's just taken me way longer than I ever thought it would. The reader's companion to The Year of the Red Door is inching along. Some of you have been asking about it, about when I'll have it finished and published. Well, all I can say is no time very soon. Most of it is already written, and I'm really sorry that it's taken me so long to get it properly organized. It's looking as if I'll need to publish it in volumes, with one volume devoted to a glossary, another to chronology, and another two biographical sketches, and so forth. At this point, it looks as if it will be a seven-volume set, but most of those volumes would only be one or two hundred pages, if even that long. I beg your pardon for all of the delays. About Things There are many themes and motifs within the Year of the Red Door. In this section, I'll mention one or two of them for you to think about. I'd like to offer a few thoughts about gifts in the Year of the Red Door. In a distant light, our company of friends find themselves seated at a banquet table in celebration of midwinter. A ribbon of light flies around the large hall, As it passes over each table, small gifts appear before the people seated there. They are special presents, each one especially prepared and intended for only one person. Not knowing what to do, Robbie and company watch the other guests open their presents, each of which contains a prophecy pertaining to the recipient. "'Will you not open your presents?' asked the lady next to Sheila. Sheila looked awkwardly at the little box before her and then at Ash Lord. He shrugged, obviously as reluctant as she. "'I hardly think these can be for us,' Sheila replied. "'How can they be?' Billy interjected. "'We only just got here, passing through like, "'And surely we sit in the place of others whose right it is to be here,' Robbie added. "'Pish-posh and ridiculous,' the lady laughed jabbing her stout companion next to her, who laughed with her, none sit at these tables nor enter these halls except those whose places are made ready for them. This is a time of year that many of us begin stressing out over shopping for gifts. So I thought it might be appropriate to share some thoughts about some of the various gifts in the Year of the Red Door. I will talk about those kinds of gifts that are given from one person to another, but they bear a connection to gifts that are abilities, blessings, or talents, as intangible as they may often be. When shopping for just the right gift for someone, we often ask ourselves, what would this person find useful, interesting, fun, or enjoyable? What do they need? Clothes are always a popular Christmas gift, with the holiday-themed sweater being a notorious example. Music, tools, kitchen gadgets, jewelry, toys, and games are also very popular gifts, and I enjoy giving useful gadgets to the men on my list. I personally think that a book also makes a wonderful gift, especially if it's a book that made me think of the recipient when I read it. Reading a book is such an intimate activity, one that you do all by yourself and your experience of the book is unique to you. It can be said, and probably has been said, that no two people ever read the same book. And it can also be said that a book is never read by the same person twice. When the schoolmaster, Mr. Broadweed, gave Sheila the little book of poetry and verse, he acknowledged her intelligence and her sensitivity. Of all of the gifts in the Year of the Red Door, that little book was probably the least useful. Mr. Broadweed and Sheila had already made a special connection when they chatted the day before, when Sheila learned a little more about Mr. Broadweed's background. So, it is easy to imagine that Sheila was not merely flattered by the gift, but that she was genuinely touched by Broadweed's thoughtfulness. Sheila cherished not only the book, but the sentiment, too. It is as if Broadweed said, I have confidence in you, or I, for one, do not underestimate you. Sarah Ellen and Thurden said much the same to Robbie through the gift of Swincraft, as Broadweed said to Sheila through his gift to her. They were expressing a confidence, or, at the very least, a powerful hope, that Robbie would turn out to be the new king. For the giver, a gift can be a way of saying, I know you have it in you. We don't always get those kinds of gifts, and we aren't always able to give what we'd like to give, knowing that our gift to a special person just falls short of our love or regard for that person. When a gift is right on, the right gift at the right time, there's really nothing else quite like it. I've only ever received two life-changing gifts, but I've received many gifts that were very useful, or were entertaining, or were fun, and all of them were given by kind and thoughtful people. Gifts are really just symbols, after all. So when Liriam offers Robbie two very powerful gifts, she tests him. She says to him, they are unworthy of the king who must lead the world into a new age. She tacitly implies that she herself is in some way inferior to Rabi, a subordinate, and that her offerings are from a genuine hope for Rabi. Lyrium sets forth an example of humility that will be echoed later on by others. Those tangible offerings form symbols for intangible gifts. Later in the story, when Ashlord cautions Robbie about misusing his special abilities, dream-walking, he says to Robbie, It seems fitting that one who is to become king should have extraordinary powers, but keep in mind the old saying that the gods demand much of those they curse and more of those they bless. That's the great conundrum about giving in receiving. When a person gives us something of great value, we wonder if our own gift to them measures up. Sometimes our hearts move us to give something of far greater value than we would ever receive in return. But alas, we refrain from doing so because we do not wish to put any implied obligation on the recipient. Ash Lord's statement to Ravi touches upon a basic question. What do we owe in exchange for some gift or blessing? Aren't gifts supposed to be given completely, well, free? How is our gratitude related to another person's generosity? There have been many examinations of that philosophical issue going all the way back 2,000 years to Seneca. The context of reciprocity is something that comes up again and again, in the Year of the Red Door, not so much with tangible gifts as with promises, actions, or feelings. It is almost as if the story asks, should a gift be considered by the recipient as debt? Perhaps a true gift is something given with no expectation of repayment of a debt. Some gifts are impossible to repay, as Billy says of Iban: He saved me life one time, And I ain't forgot it. A person can live his whole entire life and not repay such a thing as that. Gratitude, it turns out, goes a long, long way. And maybe it makes up the difference. Because it is something that cannot be forced, expected, or exchanged. It is not only an attitude, but gratitude is also a stance, not just toward others, but simply toward some situation that we appreciate might not have turned out so well. Sheila struggles with her gratitude because it is something that is new to her. It is forming throughout the story as she comes to ponder and appreciate various acts of love and kindness, and she struggles to express it, but she tries. She tries to thank Ellen for his gifts to her when she was a little girl. She attempts to express her gratitude to Robbie his love. Of course, there are limits to our ability to express gratitude, but sometimes acknowledging those limits goes far. As when Sheila says to Ash Lord, I don't think I have ever thanked you for what you did for me, the way you took me in, the way you taught me how to read, how to speak, how to strive to have a right mind and heart. I was in a terrible state when I came to you. I could have given up. I wanted to give up. You don't know how many times I stood on the walls of Tulith Addis and thought, if I only step off, it will all be over. What stopped you? Ashlord asked. Little things. The thought of you looking for me when I did not return. The thought that you, at least, would be disappointed in me or hurt. The thought of never seeing. Sheila glanced over at Ravi, sleeping nearby. My dear, said Ash Lord, never have I had children, and never shall I. But if one can be a daughter to a man in his heart only, and not of his blood, then you surely are as my own daughter would be. For in my heart you have made a place, in spite of my reluctance, to take you in. Little Sertina understood long before I did, and it was she who watched over you as you stood on those walls, and it was she who showed me your temptations. And while I paced for your return to our cottage, my eyes were not always dry. This was a fright to me, but it informed me of my heart, for in all my long years I have cried only three times, and when you returned to me I was filled with joy, And I gave my thanks to he who made me and put me here, for it was he who sent you to me. You needed me, perhaps that is so, but, as it turned out, I needed you too. So do not thank me for anything I may have done, for I do not have the words to thank you. Little things indeed, and yet there is magic in every gift, tangible or not. The magic is that they are always about the future. This, we seem to say by giving a gift, is for you to have from this moment on to do with what you wish, for it is now yours. Last month I spoke of taking the worry off. That too is a kind of gift. In a distant light, Uncle Solstice says as much to Ashlord, I take the burden, such as I may, from all who join me here. I spread it out, so that the many may carry the weight of it with the fellowship of their hearts. Some come to me with their concerns, and to express their wishes, as you have seen them come. Most others keep their worries to themselves. But don't you think that good company, in and of itself, often lifts the spirit And that a joining of joy and thankfulness, one with another, from person to person, gives to all a strength made of hope. I do, I certainly do, answered Ashlord. And so it is that I am here, stated Solstice. What more do you need know of me? Nothing in need, said Ashlord, but I am curious, it is my nature to be so, for example. I am given to understand that you come here twice each year, in winter and again in springtime. But where do you abide for all of the rest of the year? Where? Why, wherever there is goodwill and kindness among people. I seek it out, and I never have to look for very long. Indeed, I never fail to find it. Wherever I go, I find love and joy and charity and hope and gladness in great or small amounts." In that chapter, The Feast of Solstice, I intentionally made Uncle Solstice to be like two other well-known figures in literature and folklore, Santa Claus and the Ghost of Christmas Present. From one I borrowed appearance, clothes, the sleigh, and a jolly demeanor. From the other I borrowed the torch, and the ability to go anywhere and be anywhere. When Robbie and company first meet Solstice, his sleigh is crammed full of colorful bulging sacks and chests with boxes of marvelous woods and intricate hardware. And when he arrives with Robbie and Sheila in Greenfar, they stop in front of a large building. The steps leading up to the open doors were lined on either side with white-gloved boys and girls, wearing green velvet coats, just like the driver, but trimmed with red fur. Atop their heads, they sported pointed caps of red with thin white brims upturned to each side. Their shiny black shoes had curled up toes, and their stockings were banded in red and white. They all stood like soldiers, looking straight ahead, expressionless. Then there appeared, at the top of the stairs, a taller figure, similarly dressed as the others, but with a red-pointed beard, curled up at its sharp end, just like his shoes. He strode down the stairs and bowed. The driver got out, and he extended his hand to Sheila to help her descend beside him. "'Ho, Raskin!' said the driver, greeting the waiting man. "'Joyous day, sir,' said Raskin, bowing again. "'You bring guests with you this year.' "'Most certainly I do,' and four more along the way. Would you be a good fellow, and make arrangements to fetch them along as quickly as may be? Right away, sir. Raskin snapped his fingers, and immediately the other attendants sprang forward, climbing as only children can, onto the sleigh, and pushing and pulling and heaving out the boxes and sacks and bags, and handing them from one to another up the stairs and through the doorway." Again, I was riffing off the notion that many of us have of Santa's helpers. But when Solstice speaks with Ashlord, he never mentions the items that were unloaded from his sleigh, nor the gifts that were magically presented to each person at the feast. That's because the entire event is a celebration of gifts and blessings and fellowship. And the foundation for all else rests upon those gifts and blessings that we hold within and share from our hearts, such as joy, charity, kindness, hope, and love. These are transformative gifts, and by sharing them with others, we ourselves are transformed. What do you think? Did you find some thread about gifts running through the story? Or do you have a question? Let me know. questions and answers. In this section, I'll strive to answer your questions. I might not get to your question right away, so please be patient. This issue's question comes from D in the United States. D asks, When we first meet Queen Sarah Ellen in The Bell Ringer, she seems sympathetic to Robbie's cause, and even seems to know his destiny. But when it comes time for her to really help Robbie in the final volume, To Touch a Dream, she has to be convinced to do so. The way that Robbie does this is through her dreams, by having various dreamwalkers come to her and show her things. Could you talk about this and explain why this is so important to the story? Yes, the Queen is sympathetic toward Robbie it is implied that she thinks Robbie might become the new king of Duinor. She hopes that a new king in Duanor might be willing to make changes that would benefit her own realm, Venara. But of course, much more is at stake that she does not comprehend. sarath Ellen is a complicated figure. Uh, just a little background on her might help some. She has been around for thousands of years. Her grandfather Coupaldane was one of the seven Eliphane to receive a set of blood coins, and Coupaldane became the second king of Venara. Later, after Kupeldane's murder, Sarath Ellen's father became king, but he became a despot and created a tyranny in Venara. Queen Sarath Ellen killed him and took the reins of power, becoming queen of Venara. So she has a long memory of a long history. Those blood coins of hers. Became a symbol of her family's sovereignty, you might say. In The Bellringer, we learn that she periodically shows them to her people so that they will be reminded of her right to rule and of the legacy of the blood coins. They are the crown jewels. So, of course, when Robbie needed them, she was not willing to give them up. They were just too important to her and to the people of Venara, and she simply did not comprehend the real meaning and value of the blood coins. She was powerful, and tried to do what was best for her people, but she was up against far greater powers, and she felt somewhat backed into a corner by history and by Duanor's growing power over her own country. When Lirium met with her and told the queen about her vision, about the implication that Sereth Ellen would be a servant to the new power that was arising, Sereth Ellen was insulted by the very idea of it, and she lost her temper. She was haughty and proud, but she knew she should not be. And just afterwards, after Lirium was dismissed, the queen privately expressed to her brother feelings of regret about how she behaved toward Lirium, and feelings of uncertainty about everything. But Robbie needed her blood coins, and he could have just taken them. No amount of guarding them could stop Robbie from doing that. But Robbie doesn't want to just take them. This is evidence of Robbie's character and his sense of right and wrong, and also also an aspect of Robbie's wisdom, too, wisdom that he gained through his experiences and trials in Gryphorus. He wanted to have Sarah Ellen as an ally, not an enemy, so he had to convince her to willingly give up her coins. Really, what he needed was for her to change. He needed her transformation, in a manner of speaking. He needed Sarah Ellen to come to the decision to give up her blood coins on her own for her own reasons. So, like you said, Robbie arranged visitations, dreamwalkers who acted as guides, and who showed Sarah Ellen various things in the world. It's really very much akin to what happened to Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. A transformation is really what the year of the Red Door is all about. The story is full of transformations, of people animals, plants, and the world. Throughout the story, there's the language of transformation. Um, During the first battle of Talonville, night became nightmare. In the bell ringer, the stone columns became soldiers. In a distant light, Ullen perceives a momentary transformation of the forest. Thin saplings transformed into tall, thick spears held in the hands of dark, moss-bearded giants the fireflies that wandered through the far shadows seem now to be the blink of polished steel in moonlight. We find themes having to do with transformations in many works of literature, instances where people have had a road to Damascus moment. So Sarah Ellen's transformation is very important to the story, not just as a plot device, but as a symbol and as a foreshadowing of other events soon to unfold, other transformations to come, would be on an unprecedented scale. Change is what the story is all about. Sarah Allen's transformation brings full circle from The Bellringer the theme of change and transformation. When Robbie first met Sarah Allen in The Bellringer, remember what she said to him? She said, we Elephane are afraid of change. Perhaps we have seen too much of it. I could go on and on about transformation and change, As one of the overarching themes of the Year of the Red Door, but I think I've answered your question, so I'd better just leave it at that for now. And thank you so much for sharing that question. I hope my answer was adequate. Okay, folks, don't ease up on me. Keep those questions coming. You can send them in by clicking on the Click Here and Ask button in the newsletter, or by going to theyearofthereddoor.com, and from the left side menu, select Ask the Author. And if you want to just mail a question to me, you can use the address at the bottom of any of the web pages at the yearofthereddoor.com. Thinking out loud. In this section, I'll try to talk to you about whatever happens to be on my mind. Think of it as a kind of editorial essay. I might reminisce or vent, I might rail against something or other, or I might just think out loud. For many of us, this is a magical time of year, imbued with so many themes, so many traditions, and so much religious significance. So I find myself reflecting on my own Christmases past, and I've had a lot of them. Frankly, I don't remember every single one, and I wish I could recall some of them better than I do. Nonetheless, drinking from this cup yields a bittersweet flavor. I think of friends that I have not seen in a long time, and those I'll never see again. And the strains of an old song come to mind in the verse that goes, But seeds between us broad have roared since old lang syne. In my last Thinking Out Loud installment, I mentioned my father's childhood, so it will come as no surprise to learn that as an adult, Christmas was his favorite time of year. At least, that's what he told me. When he was a young father, struggling to make a living for his family, he worked at least two jobs all year long, in part so that he could lavish toys upon his children. I recall very well how the three of us kids would rush out of bed on cold mornings and dress for school in front of the single gas heater in the living room. On the opposite side of the room, draped with tinsel, hung with glittery glass balls, and glowing with multicolored lights, was our Christmas tree, filling the room not only with its marvelous light, but its aroma, too. And, of course, underneath was a pile of wonderfully wrapped presents that seemed to grow each night. And while we got dressed for school, our eyes continually strayed over to that side of the room and those presents. I'm thinking about all the gifts I've ever received my whole life. Toys, books, games, music, tools, clothes, and delicious treats. And I'm remembering one gift that was quite special. It was perhaps the most lavish gift my parents ever gave me, at least relative to our income, and it was one that was destined to change and shape the course of my life. As soon as I opened it, I knew my life had changed, though I would not really comprehend how for many, many years. I was ten years old exactly fifty years ago this Christmas. I was given a time machine. I kid you not, a real honest-to-goodness time machine. It was incapable of transporting me to past epochs, but what it could do was open a window in time and let me gaze upon the wonders that it revealed. It goes by another, more prosaic name. It was a telescope, a very good telescope, a good heavy tripod, a good 3-inch objective lens, a spotting tube, and an assortment of eyepieces. At its most powerful, it could magnify up to four hundred times. I saw for myself the craters on the moon, spots on the sun, Saturn's rings, and Jupiter's red spot. I watched Polaris fade and brighten from night to night. I looked upon the great nebula of Orion, and I beheld the beautiful seven sisters of Pleiades. When I watched sunspots traverse our star, I was seeing light that took a little over eight minutes to get to my telescope. When I looked at Pleiades, I was viewing the Seven Sisters as they were 444 years ago. The Great Nebula showed itself to me from almost 1500 years ago. It took me a long while to get my head around the notion that I was peering back in time. It took longer for me to get my head around the tremendous distances involved, but here's the life-changing part. I did get my head around those things. Those distances are not inconceivable. Like anything, thinking about it just takes a bit of practice, and not very much practice either. What that telescope did for me was to put me on the path of thinking about our universe and the vast distances and sizes involved. What I learned was that it only takes about a second or third grade education to get it. And you don't even need much math, besides some basic addition and multiplication. That was a real shocker. How little you need, how little it takes to grasp the fundamental facts of the cosmos. The bigger shocker, and something that still rattles me, is how common it is for people not to even try. They don't even try. Many people actually believe that to even ponder such things requires some kind of genius-level IQ or some natural mathematical ability. But it doesn't. If you know how to figure out your gas mileage from the amount you pump into your car's tank and the number of miles since your last fill-up, then you have way more calculating talent than is needed to form a picture of our Milky Way. Do you have to know each and every star in our galaxy? No, no more than you need to account for each and every molecule that you pour into your gas tank. It's really sad, not because it's a kind of willing ignorance, which it is, not even because such willing ignorance prevents mundane but important decisions from being made correctly, which it does. Sad, not even because so much of the survival of life on our planet, short-term at least, depends, which it does, on a grasp of fundamental scientific facts. It's almost as if some people don't want us to survive. No, I don't think it's sad merely for those good reasons. It's sad because so many people are missing out on a font of inexpressible and sublime beauty. Knowing that, say, clocks on our satellites have to be adjusted to account for how time slows down for those satellites compared to our clocks on the ground, well, that doesn't get me any closer to God, except perhaps in some incremental way. But knowing that the wondrous blue light That bathes the seven sisters is 450 years old. Well, that does. It's like standing under a very old tree, knowing that it was around way longer than I've been alive, and will probably be around way longer than I will be. Have you ever had that feeling? That's the feeling that people miss out on an appreciation rooted in a few basic facts about our universe. It doesn't make me feel puny. It doesn't make me feel insignificant. When I look up at Pleiades, I feel connected. Connected? Yes, because I know that I am connected to Pleiades, to the North Star, and to Orion in so many ways. We exist via the same mechanics of physics, the same limitations of light and matter. Those are all connections true. But this time of year especially, I feel a strong connection simply through my enjoyment of their beauty, through their magical way of touching me with their light from so long ago. When I see Pleiades, the photons that land upon my eyes will never land on any other eyes but mine. And they are sent from so far, so long ago, to get here, to me. One of my favorite book-related quotes is this Declaration by Carl Sagan. What an astonishing thing a book is. It's a flat object made from a tree with flexible parts on which are imprinted lots of funny dark squiggles. But one glance at it and you're inside the mind of another person, maybe somebody dead for thousands of years. Across the millennia, an author Is speaking clearly and silently inside your head, directly to you. Writing is perhaps the greatest of human inventions, binding together people who never knew each other, citizens of distant epochs. Books break the shackles of time. A book is proof that humans are capable of working magic. So, too, are the stars. And that's why I'd like to invite you to do something special during this holiday season. Find a place, travel to it if you have to, away from city lights. Go there on a clear and cold night sometime after midnight. If you go with someone, speak only in whispers. Take no flashlight, leave your phone behind. Take only a chair or a blanket to sit on and just peer at the heavens for one hour. Just one hour. There's no telling what you might see, what you might feel. It has the power to change your life if you will only let it. That's what I've been thinking about. And thanks for letting me think out loud. I appreciate it. Don't forget about your current freebies, including the newish one, about the battle of Sultani Pass. The backstory of Garassa is still available to you if you want it, and the other freebie is the reader's reference. You can download whichever one you want or all of them by following the links in the newsletter. Okay, that's all for now. Remember, you can get in touch with me by using the ask the author form at the yearofthereddoor.com or you can write to me at asktheauthor at penflightbooks.com. I'll get back to you just as soon as I can. I hope that the holidays will be very special and meaningful for you, full of comfort and joy, and that the coming year will be one filled with all of the best and beautiful things. Thank you so much. The music you are listening to is Winter Fantasy by Aural Axiom. This has been a PenFlight Books production. Visit, explore, and browse the year of the red